Thank you, Pete. Today's reading is from Luke 21, verses 5 to 38. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will the sign that they are about to what will be the sign they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Before, But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand about how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its destruction is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape 
all that is about to happen and that you may, may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Thank you. Well, good morning. As you uh, heard the scripture verse read out before, you understand it's a very difficult passage, to be sure. It's, um, I guess, made all the more difficult because many a level-headed Christian all of a sudden turns passionate concerning their view of the uh, end times. And I'll, I'll unpack that further as, as we go through the passage. Uh, a passage like this and, and its counterpart in, in Matthew and Mark deserves, you know, deserves longer than what we can give here in a 30-minute um, window. And in effect, I'll be giving kind of the Reader's Digest version of it. And hopefully enough, though, that can, can pique your interest for, for some further study. And, and if you want the Reader's Digest of the Reader's Digest version then the theme of today's passage is look. Not, not glance, not, not even see, but, but look. Look observantly. So as, as we journey through, you'll notice that there's a, a progression that, that forms the, the bones of, of this morning's sermon. We go, we go, look at the temple, look for the signs, and that makes up the bulk of the passage. Look at yourself and look for Christ. So with that said, let's pray and then we can, can get started. Lord God, we, we come to you this morning and we, we ask for the empowering of the preaching of your word. We just ask that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see you. We want to hear you and we want to, we want to see you at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's, there's a concept in, in cultural studies um, known as national anchor points. Now, they're usually grand man-made structures, landmarks that, that represent a country in which they're made, so much so that when you see them, you automatically know the country where they come from. On top of this, they become a type of you know, cultural rallying point, a source of, of pride and a, of national identity within the, the international community. And you can see some up on the screen up there. You know, you've got the pyramids, the Taj Mahal, the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty... Uh, the Great Wall, Christ the Redeemer, and, and even a bit closer to home there with, with the Opera House and Harbour Bridge. And, and by looking at these images, you know in your mind straight away that the pyramids come from Egypt, the Taj Mahal, India, Eiffel Tower you know, from Paris or, or, or France, and, and so on. And, and I've, I've been to a, a few of those, those places, and they're truly grand structures. And, and that's the reason that they're significant tourist attractions. And and in Israel, during the, during the time of Christ, they, they had their own national anchor point. It was a structure so grand that it was known all around the Roman world for its uh, magnificence and for its, its opulence. Massive stones, the huge stones, some foundation stones being 20 metres long, two and a half metres wide and, and two metres high. The manpower to get those stones in place on the temple, marble columns and, and edifices, gold plating that, that dazzled in the, in the, in the sunlight. It was, it was truly a, a sight to behold and many Roman and Jewish historians of the day talk about 
the magnificence of this place. It was it attracted pilgrims and tourists from, from all around the known world. And, and of course, I'm talking about the, the Jerusalem temple and, and life in Israel, it, it revolved around the temple and its worship. Even, even those as far north as Galilee from where, where Jesus was, was based made pilgrimage up to four times a year to the, the religious feasts and the, and the population of Jerusalem would swell during those times. We tend to, we tend to think... I don't know if it's just the assumptions we make, but we tend to think Jesus' ministry largely occurring out in, out in, the, out in the country areas. But if you did a study of, of how much of Jesus' teaching actually took place in the temple precincts, you'd be, you'd be surprised. There's, there's teachings and parables associated with the, the famous sayings of Jesus, and they're up on, on the screen up there. They all happened in the temple. You know, when Jesus, Jesus says, is, is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink, sayings like, I'm the light of the world, or you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, or love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, that they're all sayings and parables and teachings of Jesus that happened in the temple. Well, it, as we've been reading through and going through the last uh, couple of weeks, it, it, it all came to a head during Passion Week, and Jesus rise into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in, in fulfilment of the, the scriptures. His, his triumphal entry, the, the, the pilgrims chanting their, their hosannas, the, the red carpet treatment. But even so, this time of, of jubilation, there was a distinct moment of extreme sadness on Jesus' part. We're only told of, of Jesus weeping twice in, in, in the Gospels. The first was the, the death of, of Lazarus. The second was his triumphal entry, what was supposed to be a time of, of jubilation. And as Jesus descends the Mount of Olives on that donkey, Jerusalem and, and the Temple Mount, in full view, he starts to cry. He knows that within one generation, this city and its world-famous temple will be devastated and left desolate. And we can read that in Luke 19, 42 to 44. Jesus on the donkey, on the way, coming into Jerusalem. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Imagine Jesus saying this in, in, in full weeping, knowing what's coming ahead. And so Jesus, tears dried, he rides to the temple. He inspects it, he cleanses it, as we, as we went through a couple of weeks ago. We read elsewhere in, in, the, in other gospel stories, he curses the fig tree as a parable against the temple. A tree full of leaves but no fruit. A temple full of show but no substance. And so he embarks on, on one final seminar, one final teaching in the temple court, spanning, spanning a few days knowing that his time has come. And we've been going through that teaching over the last you know, month, month or so. But to set, the passage, uh, to set the context for today's passage, we need to look at, at Matthew 23. Jesus is in the temple on day two and he pronounces a series of seven woes of judgment against the, the religious elite. 
And it culminates in Matthew 23, 39, where Jesus, at the, at the end of his sermon, hits them with the punchline, look, your house, your temple, is left to you desolate. Can you imagine the shock that that would have been? Religiously, to, to, to render something desolate was to make it unfit for worship, a, a spiritual wasteland. It's like a corruption of, of sacred space. It's the, it's the complete opposite of what holiness is. And that's the context leading into today's passage. Jesus pronounces a woe of judgment on the religious establishment, hits them with that punchline, and then starts to leave the temple. And we can read that in, in Matthew and Mark. And it's there that we pick up the story at verse 5. So let's read verses 5 and 6 then. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not, even, when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. In, in light of, of a statement of desolation, some of the disciples comment about you know, just how magnificent the temple is. You can hear them saying, look at this place. How could something so wonderful become a wasteland? And I've mentioned earlier how grand the temple was, and you can see it up there uh, uh, again. It, it, was, it was the matrix through which the whole of Jewish life was interpreted, and it would be totally unthinkable for God that God would let his sacred space be rendered useless for worship, especially when most of the people there, all of the people were looking forward to an imminent Messiah to come to throw off those shackles of Rome. But in these verses, Jesus doubles down here. He says, indeed, indeed, look at the temple. I assure you, not one stone will be left on another. And so his, his disciples think, that's unbelievable. How can, how can something like that happen to a place like this? And, and they're perplexed. And in Matthew and Mark, we read that, that they waited until mid-journey uh, back to their, their home base in Bethany, up on the Mount of Olives, to question Jesus about this. And, and, and sitting down from the Mount of Olives in full view of the temple, overlooking its grandeur, we read on in, in verse 7. Teacher, they said, they asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? Understandably, they they probe Jesus further. When, when will these shocking things happen? Surely something so drastic would require warning signs from God. What, what, are, what are the signs that, that this desolation will soon take place? And so we come to you know, the, some of the controversial parts of the passage and how we to interpret the signs of the end. And, and the problem we have in coming to, uh, to passages like this, is that most of, most of us will come with our own underlying assumptions depending on our you know, own interpretive framework, how we were brought up, the tradition we're in, where we were taught. You know, words like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, dispensational, preterist, idealist, futurist, historicist, you can read historicist, you can read it all up there depending on, on which overall framework suits best for you to, to try and you know, join together the, the, the puzzle pieces, even, even so, we still need to progress through the text of this passage and, and sometimes even allow our own assumptions to be challenged. And I'll, I'll give you an example here. 
Many, many here will assume that the book of Revelation teaches about the Antichrist and the end of the world. But it may surprise you then that the word Antichrist doesn't even appear in the book of Revelation. It only appears in a few verses in 1 John and one verse in 2 John. That's it, in the whole Bible. Yet many make the assumption, it could be right, it could be wrong, that the Antichrist is the same as the beast of Revelation, whose number is 666, the same as the, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, the same as the, the little horn in Daniel 7. Now, nothing explicit tells us that. People join the dots. Nothing black, nothing white. It's an interpretive framework that people use. And that's the problem that we, that we have in coming to passages like this about signs for the end. We all know that there are, are foundational beliefs in the Bible that, that are black and white. There's no doubt about that. There, there's black and whites in the Bible, but there's also shades of grey around the black and whites. Let me give you, let me give you some examples to, to prepare you for where I'm going with this. We, we know that we are all saved by grace through, fight, through faith. That's black and white. No doubt about it. But you can look at your salvation either through a Calvinistic or an Arminian lens, black and white with some shades of grey. We all believe in the Holy Spirit, black and white. Whether you believe he still imparts gifts of tongues or healing today, well, that comes down to your interpretive shade of grey. We all believe that, that the Bible is God's written word to us, black and white. But how you translate it, formally or dynamically, is a shade of grey. So, so what am I getting in here? That there, There's black and whites, but there's also shades of grey. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's absolutely black and white that Jesus will return in the future at the end of history. But how you interpret end-time passages like today's is a grey area. Now, I won't fire a shot your way, and I hope you won't fire a shot my way. But the, the, the issue is that certain words, certain phrases can be in, quite legitimately interpreted differently. Even, even in today's passages, there's some grey area phrases towards the end. Signs in the sun, moon and stars. Heavenly bodies that will be shaken. The, the son of man coming in a cloud. This generation, the whole world. They're all sayings and phrases of words that can mean multiple different things depending on what context you think it is, quite legitimately from different angles. Most of the times the, these differences of opinion are summed up in a single question. Do you, when you think, when the New Testament uses the phrase, the last days, do you think it's referring to the last days of the old covenant or to the last days of the world at the end of time? How you answer that question is largely determined by your interpretive shade of grey. So whatever your whatever you, your answer, I'll keep my cards close to my chest at the moment. Whatever you need, whatever your answer, let's work through the passage. Now we're moving from looking at the temple to looking for the signs. And as we will see, these warning signs from Jesus, they fall into to two categories. You've got general signs and you've got specific signs. So let's go through the, the general first, verses 8 to 19. He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he. The time is near. Do not follow them. 
When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must, take, must first happen, then the end will not come straight away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs in heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you over to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. But make up your mind, do not worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. So Jesus gives us the, the general signs. There's going to be false messiahs. There's going to be false prophets. There's going to be false teachers. And Jewish historians, Roman historians, you can even read it in Acts chapter 5, they list several men that came in that first century proclaiming themselves to be this long-awaited Messiah and, and putting out the rally call to go battle the Romans. And Jesus tells his disciples, don't be deceived, don't follow them. Follow them. I'm, it won't be me appearing in the desert. Jesus also says there's going to be rumours of wars and uprisings from around the empire, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, sin outworked on a geopolitical scale, but, but don't be alarmed. Foreign wars are just a, a warning sign of what lies ahead. There will be all manner of, of natural disasters. You've got sin being worked out in, in the entropy of creation, earthquakes and, and famines and plagues and omens in the skies. And, and again, you can, you can read first century historical writings that cite multiple examples of these things happening. And, and both Josephus and, and Tacitus, two sources that we get a lot of information from for this time, mention specific signs in the skies that people took to mean a big change was on its way. We also see that the saints will be targeted there. Uh, sin outworked in, in religious persecution. And, you know, Jesus lists it there. You've got show trials in synagogues. You've got jail time. You've got appearances before kings and, and governors. You've got betrayal to death, even by those of, of the same family. And you can read in the book of Acts that all that took place. But Jesus encourages them, when you stand before the accusers, don't prepare your elaborate lawyer's defence to try and get you off the hook. I'll be your lawyer. I'll be your advocate. I'll give you a mouth to speak. And then, you know, I've always found this part humorous where, where, where Jesus says, they will put some of you to death, and then he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Um, I guess it's irony there, because we, we read straight away, Jesus says, stand firm and you will gain life. So there you have a general general warning signs the disciples were to interpret that God's judgment was on its way but it was still a little way off and and that that such signs are generally nature is proved by you know the current state of the world that we that we live in you don't have to look far to see wars or, or natural disasters or believers being persecuted for for following Jesus and even today we can heed those warning signs that that sin continues to corrupt God's good intentions and his final judgment against the whole world is still to come in the future. Nothing specific, nothing chronological here, just general signposts marking the spiral down. 
All right, so far, so good. No bullets to, to dodge. Now Jesus turns from the general to the specific and lists some concrete events that will occur. We can read, we'll read on that they're bigger and they're brighter warning signs that God's judgment against Jerusalem and the temple was fast approaching. These were the, the, the type of signs that they were to wait observantly for and once seen to follow Jesus' instructions to escape. So let's read on verses 20 to 33. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country do not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you know for yourselves that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, load your weapons. How, how do we approach these verses? And, and like, like most here this morning, I've got my own assumptions, my own interpretive framework that I work from that, that I think best fits together the, the puzzle pieces. And you know, I've done a bit of study in this area and have settled on my interpretive shade of grey, if you like. And if I were to answer the previous questions that were up on the screen, who wants to be a millennial, I would have answered... C and B respectively now, see who can remember what they were. No cheating, no going back to C, at least not now. But I'm going to approach this passage following the, the, the general predominant view of the Olivet Discourse that existed in the, in the Church Fathers through the Reformers and up to the, to the 19th century. And it was the view that, that all the words in this passage, not necessarily the book of Revelation, leave that aside, but we're talking about this passage here, the Olivet Discourse, that all these were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. You can go through all of church history up to the mid-1800s to find that. In the mid-1800s, there was a new interpretive framework developed in England called um, dispensational pre-millennialism, and it's become the most common shade of grey to interpret end-time passages today in the, in the evangelical world. And, and in a nutshell, it stresses, you know, there'll be a future temple, there'll be a future sacrificial system, the church will be raptured, and there'll be another great battle um, against the Jews before a 
literal hundred, uh, literal thousand year reign of Christ occurs. But I'll take the approach this morning as, as, as I guess, if you will, a lowest common denominator, that these verses were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And when you read the local histories of that time, you can see connections from what Jesus says here to what we know from the writings, especially of, of Josephus, a, a Jewish historian who fought against the Romans first but then switched sides, and a Roman Tacitus who compiled a, a history of, of, the, of the Roman Caesars. However, if you, if you do draw a dividing line at verse 20 or at verse 25 regarding past and, and future events, hold your fire, that's okay as well. It's, it's, that's your end time shade of grey and if that's the case, it's just going to be a case of rinse and repeat at the, at the end of time from what we see happening here in the first century. But I'm going to follow the, the early church method of how they interpreted it here. The first concrete sign Jesus mentions is that Jerusalem will start to be surrounded by armies. The word armies here is, is literally encampments. Jesus is saying when you see an army bunker down ready for a siege, you know that it's time to get out. You know that it's time to get out. And that's unusual because if you see an army bunkering down for a siege, the most common thought would be get behind the safe walls, get into Jerusalem. We know that that's what happened. But the Christians are told, get out as fast as you can. Now, there's two instances where, that we know about in, in first century history where the Jewish Christians could have left Jerusalem in spite of being surrounded by armies. One was in AD 66 at the start of the Jewish revolt and the other was at the start of AD 70, just before the siege of Jerusalem started, which led to its destruction. And, and I don't have time to go through the, the history here, but you can just Google on YouTube, Fall of Jerusalem, AD 70, and you'll get lots of, lots of videos that go through the ins and outs, the, the fighting, the battles and counter-attacks um, leading to that. So I'll leave that for you in your own time. But essentially, in a nutshell, in, in response to this initial rebellion in AD 66, Rome sent a top-notch general called Vespasian and his son Titus with, with three legions to march on Jerusalem. And through the years 67 to 69, they systematically started a scorched-earth policy, starting up north in Galilee, working their way down through Samaria and Judea, all around Jerusalem. Eventually, they, they set, eventually the three legions came to set up camps surrounding Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at this stage was a very divided city along factional lines and there's lots of internal violent skirmishes and we can read on one case that these warring factions decided, well, to outlive the other one, we've got to destroy their food stores. And so you have food stores being destroyed, the Romans sitting back, you know, letting them do what they want to do, weaken themselves from turmoil within, so that by the time the siege actually started, there wasn't much food left in the city. And during this time, even the Roman world was, was in turmoil. And that's the traditional church interpretation of that specific uh, second sign that Jesus gives in, in uh, 25 and 26. And following similar language of judgment in the prophets, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Haggai and Joel, the shaking of the heavens and signs in the, in the sun, the moon and the stars, it was taken to mean, and you can read this in the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, was taken to mean great upheavals of rulers and, and empires, of chaos 
in the, in, the, in the political system. And we know that from history, the year 69 was the year of four emperors for Rome. There was absolute chaos at the heart of the empire and many Roman historians believe that was the death knell for Rome, but it rose phoenix from the ashes. Eventually, the armies declared Vespasian the emperor and he set sail to stabilise Rome, leaving his son Titus to finish the Judean Persian. At first, people were able to venture out of, Jer of Jerusalem as the armies approached. And I think this is more likely the time when the, the Jewish Christians left the city, especially when you consider that just before this time, the zealots, one of the factions in Jerusalem, stormed the temple courts. They killed 12,000 of their opposing faction in the temple and set up a new high priest unworthy of the task. And, and taking over the temple might be that abomination of desolation referred to in Matthew and Mark, at least from a first century perspective. Whether it was the first instance or the second instance, what we're definitely told in history is that Eusebius, an early church historian, that the Jewish Christians heeded the warning and left the city. Everyone else was flooding to the city, they left. The siege proper began just before Passover in the year 70 and again the Romans sat back, allowed Jerusalem to swell with pilgrims coming in. Once they came in, they started the siege. 1.2 million people were in the city. You can read in Josephus the first-hand accounts of the, the absolute internal devastation of the city while the Romans laid siege. It was truly barbaric, the depths to which people sank to survive. They started by eating pets first. Then they started eating their belts and their sandals. Then they started eating their babies. Total devastation in this time. Even the hardened Roman soldiers were shocked when they breached the walls. Titus, the general, he surmised that God must have had a hand in inflicting this on his people and he wouldn't accept the victory wreath at Rome because he saw that God did this. That was the traditional interpretation of verses 27 to 31 there, that the Son of Man coming in the storm clouds of judgment against unfaithful Israel. It's a reference to, uh, into da in Daniel where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. And all throughout the Old Testament prophets, you can read God's warning that he's coming. He's coming. He's coming and he, he eventually does come through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It's the same concept here and it's how the early church understood it. God coming in judgment against unfaithful Israel through the Romans. We know from history that Jerusalem was made desolate. The temple was devastated, pulled apart stone by stone to retrieve the gold plating that had melted. 1.1 million people died, most of starvation or plague. 100,000 of them that were left were sold as slaves, so many so that we're told the prices of slaves across the empire fell because the market was flooded. Jesus warned them beforehand. He says, this generation will not pass before these things take place. Look for the signs, he says. Let's move on. Verses 34 to 36. Be careful or your hearts we weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole land. 
Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Look at the temple. Look for the signs. Look at yourself. The temptation when looking for signs for events that might be far off in the distance is that you become complacent, that you become lukewarm in your face. And Jesus told them, be careful, otherwise your hearts will be weighed down through sins and anxieties. Look at yourself. Stay alert that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man when he comes. You can read in Matthew chapter 25 the parables of the, the talents and the, the, the wise virgins and the sheep and the goats. All Jesus told all these parables immediately following this Olivet Discourse. The message was the same. Stay alert. Be on your guard. Let's close. 37 to... 38. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Look at the temple, look for the signs, look at yourself, look for Christ. In spite of the message of doom, in spite of warnings that their very world would crumble around them, we read here that the people sought Jesus out every day. Every day they came back to hear him at the temple. In spite of the shock, in spite of the disbelief that such a grand structure could be torn down, they came every day. And I'm reminded of Peter's statement to to Jesus early on in his ministry. Peter says to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So let's wrap wrap things up. How do we make sense of this in in 2022? And and I want to leave you with three thoughts here, here this morning. The first one is this, that, and we read it through the signs here, God will judge the obstinate and the proud. And I warn you, you cannot win a war of attrition against sin without Jesus the victor. Let it be when Jesus returns again as king that he's coming to deliver you, not in storm clouds of judgment. Let your cry this morning be, my hope is built on on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, that Christ alone, cornerstone, that he is the cornerstone of your life. The second thought I want to leave with you this morning is that God still has sacred space. The Jerusalem temple remains desolate. You can go to Israel now. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is a testament to that. But the Bible is crystal clear. If you are born again today, if you have the Spirit of God living within you, the same God of the Holy of Holies living within you, if the Spirit lives within you, then the New Testament is clear. You are a temple of the living God. You are reclaimed sacred space. God in action, God in business, God calling the shots of your life. And the last thing I want to leave with you this morning is a challenge. At the start of this sermon, I went through the concept of national anchor points. People see a landmark and they can automatically name the country of origin. 
if you are trusting alone in the righteousness of Christ for salvation, if you are born again, if you know the Spirit of God lives in you and you are his living temple, then you are a national anchor point for the kingdom of God. When people see you, they should see the kingdom of God. And the challenge for you, the challenge for me, I've been challenging myself this whole week, do you live like a national anchor point for the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you this morning at such a, a difficult passage, but Lord, help us see that general gist. Help us see you at work that that you do come as judge. But having said that, we have been rescued through Christ. We stand on Christ the solid rock. We ask for your spirit to dwell in us. We ask that you reclaim the sacred space of worship. We ask that we become living temples for you. We ask that we can live our lives, that when people see us, they see your kingdom expanding through the world. In Jesus' name, amen.